Section 4 of Early Rome by Wilhelm Ina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2 Sources of the History of Rome, Part 2. Still more preservative of the memories of the past were necessarily those collegia or corporations of priests who, like the augurs, were intimately connected with every public transaction or who, like the pontiffs, were the keepers and expositors of all divine and human law. The pontiffs, as we shall presently see, were especially charged with keeping a public register of important passing events, and although these registers contained probably not so much political as sacerdotal information, respecting temples, omens, or other such matters, yet it is not unlikely that the College of Pontiffs was the first to work up and digest into a consecutive narrative the various isolated facts which had been transmitted from preceding times in one way or another, and that the men who took a leading part in public affairs were more or less familiar with a current narrative generally believed to be the history of the Roman people. Nevertheless, we cannot imagine that tradition alone could have sufficed to produce a continuous and connected narrative of the transactions of several centuries, however faithfully it might preserve the memory of great national events and eminent public men. The Roman analysts gave, year by year, the names of the consuls, often men of no great repute, and related many events which are anything but striking or picturesque. Tradition alone would not be able to preserve such a string of names unbroken and unentangled for a great number of years. It would, however, be pushing doubt too far if we were to look upon all those names and stories as fictitious. Moreover, the chronological order in which they are related, though sometimes interrupted and sometimes confused, is, after all, not so hopelessly irregular or contradictory as to be irreconcilable with the natural and probable development of Roman affairs. Its very irregularities, the blanks and contradictions it contains, are in its favor. Were it a deliberate fabrication, it would be much more smooth and plausible. It produces, on the whole, the impression of a genuine, though very imperfect, record. To strengthen this confidence, we must inquire whether any such genuine records existed at the time, when the analysts began to write, and what is their character and trustworthiness. It was an ancient custom at Rome continued down to the time of the Gracchi, 131 BC, for the Pontifex Maximus, the head of the Pontifical College or Corporation, to write down every year the most remarkable events and to publish them on wooden tablets for the information of the people. These tablets were preserved in the Regia, the official dwelling of the chief pontiff near the temple of Vesta on the Roman Forum. The attention of the sacerdotal chroniclers, it is true, was directed not so much to political transactions as to occurrences which were looked upon as manifestations of the divine will, such as dearth, famine, pestilence, inundations, earthquakes, and eclipses of the sun and moon. The anger of the gods on such occasions was averted by expiatory sacrifices which the pontiffs prescribed. It is not unlikely that foreign wars and civil disturbances may likewise have been noticed in these annual registers, and at any rate it would seem that to fix the date of any entries the names of the chief magistrates must have been given, as the Romans marked the successive years not by numbering them from a fixed era, but by the names of the magistrates of each year. 
Thus a meagre, but at any rate a trustworthy abstract of the most striking events must have been compiled from the time when these pontifical annals, called also Annales Maximi, after the Pontifex Maximus, were first kept. And if we could trust the statement of Cicero, the custom of keeping such annals would date from the very foundation of Rome. This, however, we cannot accept as true. For not to speak of the regal period, the annals of the Republic during the first two centuries exhibit so many discrepancies and contradictions in the names of the annual magistrates, so many repetitions, so many gaps and palpable errors, that the idea of their being based on contemporary evidence is altogether inadmissible. We are driven to the conclusion that the pontifical annals are not of the antiquity assigned to them by Cicero, or that the older ones had been lost when the annalists began to write. Now this inference is borne out by external evidence. Livy relates that in the Gallic conflagration most of the public and private records were consumed by the flames. That the pontifical annals were included in this general calamity there can be no doubt, for they were written on wooden tablets, and the hurry of the Romans in their flight was so great that they had difficulty even in saving the sacred fire of Vesta. What could have induced them to burden themselves with these clumsy historical archives when they could hardly save their bare lives? No room, therefore, is left for doubt that all the contemporaneous records which may have existed before the Gallic War perished at that time, and that the books given out at a later period as copied from the pontifical annals must have been compiled afterwards from memory or from other sources. Other materials for the oldest annals existed in the shape of various official documents, books of law based on precedents, books containing rules and regulations for different public functionaries, census lists, and above all official lists of the annual magistrates. Some of these books may have been kept in the capital which resisted the onset of the Gauls, but the greater part of them must have been renewed after the war, and therefore they cannot claim to be considered unimpeachable contemporary evidence. Another kind of documents which may have helped to preserve the memory of bygone times consists of laws and treaties cut in stone or engraved on metal tablets. Among the most important of these were the laws of the Twelve Tables, which are said to have been exhibited in the Forum. Copper at that time had the value of money, it is therefore not likely that these tablets escape the rapacity of the Gauls, who, whilst they besieged the capital, ransacked all Rome for hidden treasures. We may be sure that the twelve tables of the Decemvirs did not escape, but as they contained the fundamental laws of the Republic, we may be equally sure that they were speedily restored, and moreover, that they were restored faithfully. The same authenticity cannot be attributed to the so-called laws of the kings, leges regii, which are often mentioned by later writers and unhesitatingly assigned to one or another of the seven kings as their author. They are all of a more or less religious character, are no doubt of great antiquity, and refer to those rites and religious customs which precede all secular legislation. As the Roman kings were not only civil magistrates, but more emphatically the high priests of the nation, these laws were supposed to have been enacted by them. But they appear never to have been committed to writing in any authoritative form by order of the state, and if any collection existed in the Gallic War, its testimony would have no value as to events of the regal period. 
Several ancient writers have left us descriptions of monuments of the primeval age of Rome, including statues of kings and heroes and relics of various kinds, such as the augural staff of Romulus, his straw-thatched hut, the fig tree at the roots of which Faustulus found the basket which contained Romulus and Remus. The value of such pretended documents of antiquity will not be rated high even in an age in which relics not less wonderful abound and are venerated by thousands. The Romans were as childlike in their craving for the wonderful as our superstitious classes, and this craving was amply satisfied by priestly and antiquarian craft. Hence, though genuine monuments may preserve the memory of historical events, it is clear that not much of trustworthy history can have been elicited from the objects just enumerated. Of a very different value, no doubt, are public monuments which contain inscriptions, provided that the age of the monuments and the genuineness of the inscriptions are beyond doubt. But the statues of the Roman kings on the capital contained no inscriptions, and the inscriptions on columns and shields which writers like Livy and Dionysius refer to as genuine can be shown to be fabrications of comparatively recent times. We have now reviewed in succession the different sources from which the materials employed by the first analysts of Rome may be supposed to have been drawn. We have found them all very scanty, and it will go hard for the credibility of the early annals if we cannot discover any other sources more copious and clear. Reference has already been made to the solid structure of the Roman families. The Romans are the only people of antiquity where all families are regularly designated by and propagated under a permanent family name. Whereas in Greece names as a rule were simply designations of individuals, and a man would show that he belonged to a particular family only by adding his father's name to his own, seldom using a patronymic, the Romans had but a very small number of individual personal names, but everyone bore the name of that particular family to which he belonged, such as Horatius, Valerius, Fabius, and the like. The families, not the individual citizens, formed the units of which the Roman people was made up. Each family was a small community in itself, organized for economic and social purposes under the government of the paterfamilias, who had the power of life and death, and was the sole owner of the family property as long as he lived. The family dwelt under the same roof often long after the sons were married, its members cultivated in common the family estate, and they were bound to each other by the strongest ties of mutual duty and interest. The aristocratic spirit which pervades all Roman history is derived from the position and influence which the great families, so firmly and permanently organized, exercised in public affairs. They had existed in isolation and independence before they combined to form a federal community, and they retained a great portion of their original spirit ever afterwards. Religion lent her aid to strengthen this spirit. Adhering strictly in this respect to the earliest form of Aryan civilization, every family had its own peculiar deity, its family altar, and its family grave. No stranger was allowed to share in the worship of the family or to be laid in the family tomb. The strictness with which strangers were excluded from the inner communion of a family was proportioned to the strength of the attachment which bound the members together, 
and the veneration felt by all for the head of the family was transferred to his memory after his death. His grave was a sacred spot, and annual offerings were made to his spirit. Nor was his memory allowed to fall into oblivion. Not only was it the practice for the son to add the father's name to his own, and to call himself, for instance, Lucius Manlius, the son of Marcus, but he added the grandfather's name as well. And those families which could boast of a distinguished progenitor who had served the state in one of the higher places of trust, preserved a bust, or rather mask, of the departed in the atrium or great hall of the house, and registered his name and the titles of the offices he had filled. Thus the walls of the atrium were filled by degrees with a gallery of family portraits, which formed a kind of pedigree, and were the boast and pride of the survivors. When a member of the family died, the niches in which the masks were kept were opened. Persons dressed in the official robes of the departed placed the masks before their faces, and thus representing the members of the former generations of the family accompanied the body of the recently deceased to the marketplace. There the eldest son or some other member of the family ascended the pulpit and delivered a funeral oration in which he set forth the dead man's virtues and services. Nor did he limit himself to the deeds of one ancestor, but ascending the stream of history, he traced the great men of his house to the earlier days of the Republic and dwelt upon their exploits. Such speeches, technically called laudations, kept alive the memory not only of the doings of one family, but of the whole people. They were a kind of popular history viewed from the standpoint of a single family. And as each noble house contributed its share, the smaller streams of family histories naturally united and formed a broad channel of national traditions. The frequent occurrence of such solemnities would naturally suggest the advisability of putting down in writing the leading features of these laudations for the purpose of assisting the memory and enabling successive speakers to do full justice to those whom they were called upon to honor. Thus arose family chronicles, which, as we are distinctly informed, were kept in some noble houses, but which we may safely infer were common in all. They were preserved in the Tiblinum, the place for the family archives, and they most likely formed the chief written materials from which Fabius and Kincius composed the first national annals. We do not know the precise age when these family chronicles were first composed, nor can we speak with more certainty of the time of the first written laudations. Even the antiquity of the solemn funerals is not attested by any external evidence, but there is nothing to prevent us from supposing that the practice of the solemn funerals, including the laudations, were as old as the Republic, and that the first written memorials of the family worthies were made as soon as the art of writing was applied to practical use in public and private life, that is, in the earliest ages of the Republic. It is true, we must admit, that all such memorials which existed at the time of the Gallic War perished in the flames, except those which may have been preserved in the houses of the Capitoline Hill. But after the restoration of the city, we may be quite sure that most of what had been lost was restored, and restored from a memory which had been constantly refreshed by the periodical recurrence of the occasions for delivering laudatory speeches. Perfect accuracy, of course, was out of the question. Errors of various kinds would creep in and would be perpetuated. 
apart from such involuntary errors, the family traditions would be corrupted by willful falsifications, by concealing disasters, by exaggerating successes, by repetitions and omissions of various kinds. It is admitted by Cicero that the history of Rome has suffered in veracity from such private documents, and this defect is indeed palpable on the very face of it. But what we contend is this, that the substratum of all these tales is real and not simply fictitious, that many of the errors can be detected and corrected, and that even where the detail is lost, the general character of the events and the leading features stand out with sufficient distinctness. A patient examination of the early annals of Rome shows clearly that their origin from family chronicles is undeniable. The number of noble families sharing among themselves the high offices of state was so small that sometimes, for years together, the same names occur in the lists of consuls, and so the history of these men is identical with the history of the Republic. Thus the Valerii and the Fabii at one time, the Furii and Manlii at another, practically ruled the state and filled the annals with their names. If we assume that the lists of magistrates imperfectly kept or preserved, but still preserved in some way, enabled the first compilers to reduce the varied and often conflicting statements of the family chronicles to some sort of order, that the memorials in the hands of the pontiffs and other priests and magistrates supplied materials of another kind, that the oral tradition enlivened and diversified the dry outline, giving flesh and blood to the skeleton of names and figures, and that a little imagination and editorial skill smoothed down the rough parts of this heterogeneous mass, we can perfectly understand the genesis of the history of primeval Rome. We can account for every peculiar feature which marks it, and we shall wonder no longer at its defects, nor doubt the possibility of its trustworthiness in the general outlines. What we have just said with regard to the origin of the early annals applies strictly only to those of the Republic and not to the so-called history of the Roman kings. This follows as a natural consequence from the fact that hardly one of the names of families which occur in the Republican annals is found in the stories of the regal period. It is clear that the family traditions do not go further back than the establishment of annual chief magistrates. The yearly registers, too, whatever may have been their value, did not include the period anterior to the establishment of the Republic. The narrative of the kings passes over long periods of years in total silence, whereas the Republican annals give in every year at least the names of the consuls and generally make mention of some political or warlike transaction. There is, moreover, another fundamental difference. The Republican annals, it is true, contain many improbabilities and some statements which are altogether incredible, but on the whole they are sober and keep within the bounds of what is possible and credible. The story of the kings, on the other hand, is unreal and improbable from beginning to end. Its whole plan, composition, and arrangement bear the stamp of bold and clumsy fiction. We have said above that internal probability is not in itself a proof of the historical truth of a narrative, for fiction may be made to resemble truth very closely. But if fiction is so childish and silly that it cannot be reconciled with what we all recognize as being in accordance with physical or moral laws, no amount of external attestation could make us accept it as truth.
Hence, in the absence of external evidence, we must apply the test of internal probability and possibility to the narrative of the kings of Rome. We must therefore make ourselves acquainted with so much of it as will supply us with materials for our criticism. We shall do this the more willingly, as apart from any historical value, the story of Romulus and his successors has a certain degree of literary importance for us. It was believed almost implicitly by the Romans themselves. It furnished their poets and orators with materials for declamation and ornament. It forms part of the knowledge considered essential even now for a good education, and it will serve us as a background for the picture which we shall afterwards draw of the events more justly entitled to our attention and study. End of section 4